Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Good morning, everyone. How are we today? Yeah, me too. Both of us now. We're all good, apparently. We'll get there eventually. I get it. I get it. We had spring. Spring's gone. Now it's raining. It's going to be cold. We're confused. Hey, don't need to be confused here. It's all good. It's all good in God's house. Amen? All right. That's a little bit more believable. Hey, we are starting a new series today called Are We There Yet? And I just want you to know that the, the idea of a road trip is actually a metaphor for life. So this series is about... It's for people like us who maybe we started out on the road trip that we call life and maybe we just ran out of gas somewhere along the line. Or maybe we got a little distracted and we actually veered off course along the line somewhere. Or or maybe in the course of our life we were being directed to go somewhere and do something and yet we just stopped midstream and we just didn't follow through. So this message is for anyone and everyone who maybe has procrastinated or maybe who's just gotten stalled out on their walk with Jesus. Can we just be honest today and just say, I've just, maybe at some point you've gotten stalled out on your walk with Jesus. Can you say that? I can say that with honesty. You see, that's the thing about a life with Jesus. It's, it's a long, a long walk with Jesus through our life. And sometimes we, uh, we just don't always do the right thing or say the right thing or do what it is that God wants us to in that moment. And I think the reason why is, is a spiritual one as much as it is a physical and emotional one at times. But I, I just want to maybe survey the crowd a little bit and maybe narrow, the, may, maybe narrow it down a little bit. Do I have any chronic procrastinators in here? Raise your hand if you're a chronic procrastinator. Don't, don't delay, by the way. Don't delay. Just say that you're a chronic procrastinator. Raise them up. 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 All right. Then I'm going to talk to you and everybody who's next to you who didn't raise their hand to. I'm talking to all of you. Because here's the thing I know about life. Life is hard and life is long. And sometimes in the course of life, we, we take detours that we didn't even know existed. We have things that happen to us in the, in the course of life where we set out to go do some things or, or to be obedient in some things. And then for whatever reason, we get stalled out. I mean, all of us, we, we have a hard time when it comes to all the different facets of life, don't we? Isn't it just hard to fit in time for family and friends and hobbies and self-care and exercise and a walk with Jesus and, and church life and serving and honoring your parents and your kids and keeping them fed and putting them to bed at night and then and knowing you have to go to work in the morning? I mean, isn't it hard to manage all these things? Of course it is. So it's so much a message in a series, really, just, not just for you, also for me, because that's the thing about life. You may not be a procrastinator in five areas, but I guarantee you there's another five that you drag your feet. Or maybe you drag your feet now, but you didn't used to drag your feet because life got complicated. Here's another thing that I know absolutely for sure, no doubt about it. Because we have so much to do and we feel pressured uh, by all of our demands that we find time for one thing. We always do. And that's procrastination. Because procrastination is the one thing that everyone actually has time for, isn't it? Like we all fit that into our schedule about something, but like, that thing that God whispers, hey, get your finances right, get your marriage right, get your kids right, do this, work a little overtime, save some money, serve in church, whatever the thing is, it's like we automatically at times 
Find time to procrastinate. Not, it's not just you. That's just me. As a matter of fact, I surveyed a few places on the internet, and I found some other people who actually understand procrastination too. So I uh, just found four different images that I think that will convey some points about procrastination, maybe in your life as much as in mine, and the images that are on the screen. So here's uh, one person. Their perspective is procrastination has taught me how to do 30 minutes of work in eight hours and eight hours of work in 30 minutes. Uh, anyone feel that? It's like, oh, you drag your feet, you got distracted. Oh my goodness, I didn't do a thing today. So all of a sudden, you find the motivation and energy to do in 30 minutes before company gets there, right? Because now you got to clean the house up or do whatever the thing is. It's like, now you get it done in, in 30 minutes, but it was eight hours of work. And now here's a, maybe a, a shirt idea for you. Uh, the shirt, here's the, the procrastination shirt. Here it is. Um, top 10 reasons I procrastinate. I'm going to get around to the first one, but I got some work to do before I get there. Here's another, somebody who's basically in the middle of sorting some candy. It looks like at Walmart, um, the candy sorter procrastinator. Here you go. Um, And what you see there is it's just like they just threw them in there. It's like it's done. Just consider it. Just consider it done. They'll sort through if they want it or not. And the last one is this. I thought this, this resonated with somebody. Um, watches Netflix happily, remembers homework, exams, responsibilities, watches Netflix stressfully. So there you go. Um, I feel that too. It's like so much to see on television, on Netflix, YouTube TV, however it is that you devour media. There's just so much about this, and there's so much about our lives that makes us procrastinators. And, And there's something there too. I think part of Procrastination is just a reluctance for whatever reason, and it could be complicated as to why we're reluctant to do the thing. Let me tell you who also is reluctant. Some reluctant travelers getting into our theme, are we there yet? Some reluctant travelers, parents, they become reluctant travelers, and I'll set up the scenario in this way. So you set out on a trip, maybe it's a family trip, you're so excited, you got the snacks, you ever, everything's set, kids are all in, you think you got most of everything, but you're not really sure, you'll actually find out when you get there, but that's another story. It's like, but now you're on the journey, and yet your kids are getting restless, and yet you, you threaten them with going home, but you know you've invested too much money on the place you're going to, so you're not actually going home. And you've threatened, we're going to turn around and go home, and they're like, that's what you said last time, we're going. And they know it. They know it. So you just set out on a course to just take off and get to that place and do that thing. And then the, the longer it takes, the more your kids get unruly, the more they get unruly, the more you feel like a hostage in your own vehicle as a parent because you're like, I'm stuck here and I'm powerless. And they become, we become, parents become the reluctant travelers in that journey. They're like, I, I don't even know. I know where we're going, but I don't even want to get there. And if I do, I don't want to go there with these humans. Like, I just don't want, I don't want this right now. We can become a hostage of certain things, and honestly, in, in certain situations, and, and I think that the question that, that we're going to see today, and we're going to wrestle with today, and we're going to look at today from Jonah chapter 1, is we're going to see someone who is procrastinating, somebody who's reluctant to obey God. You see, it's different if we're started talking about kids or talking about a trip or do those things about life, and those are annoyances, but they usually don't carry the same weight as when God whispers something in our ear for us to do or a person for us to become and for us to stall ourselves out on that journey and to say, God, I know that's what you wanted for me, but uh, I'm just a little reluctant. I'm just going to take a pause on this. I'm going to have some time for me instead of listening 
to you. So eventually we're going to get into Jonah 1, I promise, with that. But I want you to know, when we look at, at Jonah itself, there's two different perspectives we can have when you look at Old Testament books of the Bible, especially one that has stories so famous that are what we see in Jonah. We can either, if you're somebody who doesn't believe in the supernatural, if you're an atheist, if you're agnostic, and you don't believe in the supernatural acts of God, you're just going to automatically write this off, or you would write this off as historical fiction. That's actually not what Jonah intended for us to get out of these four short chapters. And only one, we're only going to look at chapter one today. So you may be a little skeptical about the miracles of God, and you're just going to write this off potentially as historical fiction. But if you, by faith and reason, believe that miracles do happen and that God is still a miracle-working, supernatural God, you will actually receive it in the way that Jonah intended. Because when Jonah is telling this story, it's not a story that he's actually the hero of. God is actually the the hero of his story. As a matter of fact, if you were just to look at this story, and the only thing we know about Jonah, it's really like a faith autobiography that he wrote in the third person. So he, as we look at this, there's a lot of things in that that are actually humiliating, that he would find himself in this situation when God had spoke something so clearly into him. But yet, if we read it through the supernatural lens and believing that God is still a miraculous supernatural God, we will receive it in the way that he intended. One of the reasons why there's validity in Jonah, for those who are critical of this and acceptance of this, is... It goes back to Jesus. One of the conversations Jesus was actually having with teachers of the law and the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 39 through 41, this is what Jesus said. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but only the sign will be given to them as a sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights." The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. And they, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here. But Jesus says to the teachers of the law and to the Pharisees, he says, but you refuse to repent. In other words, Jesus is drawing a connection. He believes that the story in Jonah is actually a factual story, and he's connecting to Jonah's story, and he says one greater than Jonah is here. In in the symbolism of three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, Jesus is now elevating himself above Jonah's story, but connected to Jonah's story. And because of this, we uh, we believe that this story is a valid story in the Bible. So Jonah 1 is where we're going to be. I'm going to read all of it. It's 17 verses. It's a little bit lengthy. And I just want you to know my four main points for today are only out of the first couple verses, but I want to be uh, clear on the scripture and what's going on uh, in this passage because we're going to see a real snapshot of Jonah, where he is, where he's supposed to be, and where God is in the mix. So Jonah 1 verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each 
cried out to his own God. Notice the word God there is a small g, not a large g. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But but Jonah had gone below deck where he laid down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God, small g. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this happen to us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, This is Jonah. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told him so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the man greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights." This is a remarkable passage, not just because it's a story that maybe you heard in children's ministry or children's reading time or maybe even in family devotions. Those things are are amazing and they're miraculous when you you receive this in, in the eyes and the faith of a child. You just receive it without question. But to me, not only is that amazing, but it's also amazing to me that God would still choose to use human beings to bring his message to other people. It's amazing to me that even in the midst of this, about 730 or so years, 760 years before the birth of Jesus, Jonah has been given a mission by God to go speak to a particular group of people because God still loved those people, although he was about to send wrath to them. But before the wrath came, and it would come a generation or so later, A few hundred years later, after Jonah, eventually the people of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire would be overturned by the Babylonians. You can read this in the Bible. This is is just some of the epic tales of the Old Testament. So eventually doom would come to the Ninevites and to the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So eventually doom would come, but yet God wanted them to have a chance of repenting. God wanted them to have a chance of of receiving the truth and turn from their ways. Some things about this passage we're going to dig into. Back to verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. First thing, if you're someone who's going to be taking notes this morning, you see that he is the reluctant preacher. He was given a mission by God, and he was to obey that particular word from God to bring the message 
to the Ninevites so that they may, re- they re- may repent of their sins, that they may experience cultural renewal, that they may experience not just personal change, but maybe a change at the level of the whole culture and, and of the power of the, of, the, of the empire because Nineveh is actually the capital of the Assyrian empire. Think how amazing if a revival were to break out in Washington, D.C. right now amongst our lawmakers. Uh, just imagine how that would then permeate to the rest of the 50 states. It's that kind of power and that kind of influence that God has, has gifted and yet challenged Nona, Nona, Jonah to go out. I'm so excited. My words are getting all tripped up this morning. Probably going to be more of that. I'm fired up today. But he is a reluctant preacher. He is the one who's supposed to be bringing the message. There's no one following right behind him. He is the messenger primarily at this time. And yet he's reluctant. Jonah himself, if you're to to do more of a deeper dive in the scriptures, there's a reference. Scholars believe there's a reference to Jonah in 2 Kings 14.25. And it mentions the name Jonah. It states that Jonah was trying to convince King Jeroboam to push the country's boundaries through, mil- through military force. And he convinced Jeroboam to do so, and he pushed those boundaries by military force, and this actually caused him a great victory. So then Jonah became a national hero. So you have a national hero and someone who is looked up to by other people. He's a hero to his other people. But yet God's command to him was to go to the great city of Nineveh. Not great because they were spiritual, not great because they were moral, great because they were powerful. Go to the great, the powerful city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me, says Almighty God. You see, in order for God's love to reach them, Jonah had to meet them. It's not different for you and I today. If we're to live out the Great Commission, for God's love to reach the people that God has put in our sphere of influence, we cannot be reluctant to say yes to God and the mission of God on our lives. In order for God's love to reach those people, it may come by our hands and our feet and our mouths, by our presence. But yet, in order for God's love to reach them, Jonah had to meet them. He had to go to Nineveh. That was part of the deal. There was no ability to send an email to to some leader, political leader, to say, hey, you need to get your life right. Because Yahweh is bringing the thunder and you're not going to like it. There's no way, there was no correspondence. He had, to, he had to meet the people for God's love to reach them. It's the same with you and I. We should think of this in the same way. Instead of us thinking, if we just put a verse on our social media feed or we just say a nice thing, instead of doing all those things, we need to tell people about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Don't take a passive approach and think that you can just slap a verse on something and say, all my 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 friends on Facebook, they know I'm a Christian, they know I'm a believer, and they know I'm against all these things, and they know that I'm for Jesus. You think way too much 
of those things and way too little of obeying God, if that's your perspective. If God has given you a command, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's in a high school, a middle school, a workplace, with your family, a sphere of influence, or even something within the church, God expects you to be personally involved, not just socially involved. He expects you to be personally involved. Jonah had to be personally involved. There was no one else who was going to follow after him. You see, Jonah eventually, four short chapters... This could be divided, each chapter could be divided like this. Jonah's refusal, chapter 1. Jonah's repentance, chapter 2. Jonah's acceptance, chapter 3. Jonah's arrogance, chapter 4. He eventually did what it was that God wanted him to do, although he was reluctant at the start. Chapter 2, it uncovers his repentance. Chapter 3, his acceptance of God's message and God's call in obeying God. But then once God did what Jonah suspected that God was going to do, that he was going to extend mercy, then you see the arrogance of Jonah against these people. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says this, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Jonah says, that's exactly why I didn't want to go, because I knew that you'd be merciful. I knew that they would, they would receive your compassion, and I knew they'd repent. And Jonah says, and I didn't, I didn't even care that they did it. Because he had so much hatred in his heart. You know, it's really easy to store hatred in your heart for people you've never met. But the moment that you invite somebody who's different than you, who looks different than you, who thinks different than you, maybe even believes different than you, some amazing things happen instead of just pushing that person aside and keeping them out of your life. When you invite them into your life and you give them a seat at your dinner table, you find it really hard to hate that person. But it's easy to hate the person that you choose to disconnect, to stay disconnected from. This was Jonah, and he knew He knew that the message of mercy and compassion would land soft on their hearts. He knew the people would repent of Nineveh, and they did. And they responded to the message of hope. And yet Jonah didn't like it because he still had hatred in his heart. The hatred in his heart was stemmed because he was very prideful. His love of country... Nation is fed by arrogance. His love of God was so stingy that he couldn't see God being loved by other people. His, his theological convictions were so hemmed in that, that, that he guarded those and he didn't want to extend that same grace and mercy and compassion that God was so willing to, to other people. He did not want that to be extended beyond his own reach. He was the reluctant preacher. Let's do a deep dive into this group of people. They all have an R in them. I was being a little crafty, and yes, I had to go to the internet to do this. This just doesn't happen by mine, but maybe it would be a little bit more memorable this way. Let's see about the repulsive place. The repulsive place. This place, Nineveh. I've already mentioned that it was 
an influential city, it was capital city within the Assyrian Empire. They were also very affluent because there were certain trade routes that uh, were right in this area. And so there was a, there was a flow because of the, the Tigris River from, the, from the, the north and south trade route round through Nineveh along the Tigris River, but then also the west trade route followed the southern foothills of the Kurdish mountains in modern-day Iraq. So they met right here at this place called Nineveh. So Nineveh was a city that was very affluent because as these, these trade lines, trade routes merged, it was right on the same place. So they, they thought themselves, uh, thought very highly of themselves. We also know that the word Nineveh is synonymous with evil in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to the right. The reference is going to be on the screen, but I want to just show you what Nineveh was guilty of and what God is still repulsed by. So if you're in Jonah, you're just going to go a couple pages to the right into Nahum. Probably been a while since you've read that or forever. I don't know. But these will be on the screen. So Nineveh was guilty of and God is still repulsed by some things that we see within Nineveh. Jonah and Nahum were prophets to the people of Nineveh. Both of them were. So Nahum 1.9 says this. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. The Ninevites were known for making evil plots against the Lord. So that's the first thing we see. They're making evil plots against the Lord, Nahum 1.9. They were also guilty of, and God is still repulsed by taking advantage of helpless people. Nahum 2, 11 through 13 says this. Now, where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear, the lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for its mate, filling its lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you not prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. This is a message to the Ninevites from God. Because there's evil plots against God, God's people. They're taking advantage of helpless people. And then also, idolatry, prostitution, and witchcraft. Nahum 3, 4 through 6. All because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. There's a picture. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. This is what God is saying to a whole nation of people who are making evil plots against him. They're taking advantage of innocent people. They're forming idolatry. It's prostitution and there's witchcraft. 
I know there's a rising effect of witchcraft in our community. I'm aware of this. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But if you're not, I just want to alarm you and alert you to the reality of when you hear people talk about tarot readings or herbalism or crystal healing or spell work or meditation and visualization, these are actually occultic practices. Or if you hear people talk about energy work, that's not human energy and talking about agency as a human being installed by God. Instead, that's believing in a spiritual thing within a person that is not connected to God. These are occultic practices. These are modern versions of witchcraft today. So tarot cards, they're meant to gain insight into the past, present, or future, sometimes through a medium. Again, Modern occultic practices, witchcraft, even practiced here. Herbalism involves using plants and herbs for healing, rituals, and spell work. Sometimes they make remedies and they make salves for certain things. Crystal healing, it involves using crystals or gemstones for healing or energy work. Again, occultic witchcraft, not of God. Spell work can use herbs, candles, crystals, and other tools to cast spells for various purposes, such as attracting love or abundance or protection. These aren't from God. These are demonic forces that are in our community, that are impacting our children and our grandchildren, our coworkers, our friends, still exist today. So the same struggle that the Ninevites had in their own way, I don't know that they had everything that I just mentioned. Those were all modern-day things we struggle with. But we do know that they were forming evil plots against God and God's people. We know they were taking advantage of innocent people. We know that there was prostitution, there was idolatry, and there was witchcraft. We know that about the Ninevites. But we also can look at verse 3 and see that God had a redeeming plan. The plan first was in verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. They had to hear the word of truth. They had to, be, uh, to receive the message of the gospel. They had to, to know of the good news so that they could repent of their sins. In verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. But God had a redeeming plan for them. God's plan consisted of sending Jonah with the message of hope and reconciliation and the message that they needed to turn away from their evil practices. And that even in the midst of all of that evil that they were in the middle of, and even in the midst of just a, a corrupted empire and a whole kingdom against God and God's people, God was merciful and God was compassionate and he was willing to show his love to them. To the, degree, to the degree that he was willing to send a prophet to them. One that he had hand selected to go bring that message. This was part of God's plan. 
that how were they going to repent of their sins if there was no one to tell them the message? Jonah had to reach them to preach to them. And yet he struggled with willingness. He had to reach them. Notice in this passage, verse 3. He headed to Tarshish, which is to the east. That's the safe city. Instead of going to Nineveh, which was west, which, is what, which was sin city. So he knew the direction he was supposed to go, and he went the exact opposite direction. He was not only running away from obeying God and not only reluctant to do so, he was running away from God himself. In this passage, there's 11 usages of Yahweh. The way it looks in your Bible is, Lord, all caps, smaller font. That stands out. It's used thousands of times in the Old Testament. It's the proper name of God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They all consist in our Yahweh. So he's, he's running away to a place that he thinks he's getting away from God and getting away from obeying God. But Jonah had to reach them to preach to them. And Jonah had to, to be within touching distance to teach them. It's the same with you and I. Verse 4 through 7 You see the consequences of his disobedience. You see the running procrastinator. He's the running procrastinator. He's just jetting away from God. And yet God has a remarkable way of getting his attention. Notice that the people on board the same ship as Jonah, I made reference to it in the reading. There's two different references there to God, small g, because they're not, all, they're not all rooting for, for the, the home team. They're not all rooting for God. They're, they all have their own gods, and it says that in the passage. And yet, even they come to believe that, that the God that Jonah is running away from is a powerful enough God to bring the storm, to crash the ship, to bring the whale or the large fish for Jonah to obey. He's not only running away from God, he's also running away from what God has for us. I want to be nice to you today and just remind you that tax day is on Tuesday. I want to remind you that. Some of you have been procrastinating. Um, You've been gathering your paperwork now for quite some time. Now's the time. Sit down. Don't be afraid of the results. It is what it is. Take your lumps. Pay Cash, whatever, just do your thing. But I heard a a story about a classic tax procrastinator, and this is the story. A man had been putting off doing his taxes for months. He kept telling himself that he would get around to it, and eventually he just couldn't bring himself to do it. Finally, on the day that his taxes were due, he sat down at the desk to start working on them. But as soon as he opened the tax forms, he realized that he had no idea what he was doing. Been there before. He decided to call the IRS hotline for help, but they put him on hold for over an hour. While he was waiting, he started to panic, and he started distracting himself by cleaning his house. You must have really been, really been uh, bored if that's the case. He spent the next few hours cleaning his entire house from top to bottom. When he was finished, he realized that he only had a few hours left to do his taxes, and he still had not talked to the IRS. In the last 
ditch effort, he, he brought up a plan. He says, oh, I know what I'll do. To avoid paying the penalty, I'll just, I'll just send an email alert to the IRS explaining to them that he tried his best, but he just couldn't get his taxes done in time. He, mailed, or he, he sent the text and he attached a couple forms. He waited for a response. A few weeks later, he received a letter from the IRS, and the letter said, or the email said, rather, Thank you for the email. We understand that your taxes can be confusing, but we regret to inform you that we were too busy watching YouTube videos, and we missed your email, so you'll have to pay the penalty anyway. So there you go. The underlying issue that we see in Jonah, I'll fly through the rest of this, but it's, it's worth looking at and not glossing over. The underlying issue that we see with Jonah are the idols in his life. And by way of a definition, I'll just give you a definition as to what an idol is. It's also in, in your card. An idol is anyone or anything that occupies more space in your life than Jesus. An idol is anyone or anything that occupies more space in your life than Jesus. Anything or anyone. So, part of my study, I, I looked into a book by Timothy Keller called Counterfeit Gods, and he listed some idols, and this is where we're going to land today. Today's idols. Jonah had his idols. His idols were pride of his ethnicity, his heritage, his country, and his God. Some idols that we still have in our day are some theological idols. These are your theological convictions that we have and we cling to that actually trump our personal walk with Jesus. Saying, well, I'm a this. I'm an Arminian. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a this. I'm a that. And any time that we put something else in front of Christian, we risk leaning upon a theological idol. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have our theological convictions, but those theological convictions should not so determine the rest of our, our lives that then they trump an actual personal walk with Jesus. Because it's a personal walk with Jesus that we should continue to allow Him and our relationship with Him and the Holy Spirit in us to shape our theological convictions because they morph and do change over time. The second is sexual idols. The, the crisis of sexual identity in our culture right now, the, the idea you can be whatever you want, you can be whoever you want to be. Part of this also has to do with pornography, and all of this is leading into gender confusion. The third is political and economic idols. That's when political ideologies of left and right and somewhere in between are the rich or the poor, liberal, conservative, moderate, when all of these things become more formative in our life than our walk with Jesus, or we're known for being more about this or that rather than being a follower of Jesus Christ. The next one has to do with racial or national idols, any form of racism, any form of racism is already an idol because you have already blocked out the love for that person and you're already disobeying 
the love that God has implanted in you that he wants to flow through you to love God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is not somebody who just always has the same level of pigment in their skin as you or me. Also has to do with racial and national idols, has to do with militarism, has to do with flags, and has to do with ethnic pride. I'm from this area. I'm from that area. I'm glad I'm not from that area because I'm from this area. Relational idols. One of these being codependency in the home. I'll even go a step further and say a relational idol could be this. Anytime you've used a family member as an excuse for not obeying God. Anytime you've used your family member as an excuse for not obeying God. The next one, religious idols, traditionalism, legalism, denominational alliances, or just moralism itself. And the last, not the least, and not the only, there should be more, but cultural idols. That could be, I'm for Second Amendment rights, I'm for gun control, I'm for governmental authority, I'm for personal responsibility, I'm for family values. could be the music you listen to. John Calvin is right when he says that the human heart is a factory of idols. He's right. We look at, at Jonah and we see him as being reluctant to obey God, but if we're honest, there's areas in our life we're in the exact same situation. We're, we're all in the same seat as Jonah about something or someone. And in the midst of all of this, God has called Christians to engage our culture to help unravel the fabric of sins that have been woven into it. And we can't procrastinate anymore. The level of evil and opposition to the Christian way of life is not just knocking at the door anymore. Now they're pushing on the walls and those inside the church can see it. There needs to be a reckoning, a revival in the church. The same type of little revival that happened with the Ninevites when they heard the message of hope. They were repenting of their sins. Now sure, was it a full, like, blown out revival where everybody got saved? No, because that city was destroyed a time after, but there was a revival that happened. And it's the same spirit that, that has been reviving people in the Old Testament is still reviving people today. Christian, I want to talk to you. What are you reluctant about when it comes to your walk with God? What are you just dragging your feet? And God has been so graceful and kind and patient. He's reminded you over and over and over, sometimes in a whisper, sometimes in a shout, sometimes in a word by a, a preacher. Sometimes it was a word from a friend. Sometimes it could be just a post on Facebook that you saw and God reminded you, hey, remember that thing that we've been talking about? 
God says, I haven't forgot. You can't either. Why don't you do it? So Christian, what is it that you're dragging your feet about that God has already said, hey, you need to get this part of your life in order? And maybe, maybe your home, your finances, your family is in order, but maybe what you're not doing is you're not obeying the Great Commission. You're not actually bringing the message outside of the safety of your home. You, you have a sphere of influence, and if you don't, I would say you're actually being disobedient. You're being stingy. You're not being a good steward of your time and space and your talents and your resources because we need to know and be known by people outside of the faith. Because how are they going to know? If we don't share. And yet, the reality is this. Some of us in the room, you're not a Christian at all. And maybe you're, you look at the story of Jonah and you're like, yep, historical fiction. Just like you said. And I, that's fine. I can't force you to believe. God doesn't even force you to believe. He invites you to believe. And the only thing we do is respond to what God initiates. As you stand now. I don't know what it is that God is saying to you. Maybe in the stillness of a voice or maybe something a little bit more bold than that. But whatever that is, stop running. Stop dragging your feet. Stop going the other way. Repent. Go back to God. Today could be the best day for the rest of your life because this could be a monumental day where you said, I stopped running away from God and now I'm running to God. I want to just sit in some silence just for a second before we sing or do anything else. I just sense God has, He's still speaking. And God doesn't need me to speak for him. We just need to sit in this moment, allow him to speak and see what else he wants to say. So let's sit in some silence, please. God, stir our affections for you. Change us, make us, mold us, draw us to yourself. God, you haven't changed. You are the unchanging one in a world that is full of change and we're changing. Nations change, leaders change. But God, you're the unchanging one. God, give us the faith today to believe it. Give us the faith to leave those idols at the altar today and to cling to you. God, give us the the faith to, to not run away from the obedience that you're inviting us into. God, give us the faith. Give us the courage. Spirit of God, help us, move us towards obedience. 
and away from reluctance. In Jesus' name, amen.